Let's go to prayer as we do before we study, and then we'll open up our Bibles to chapter 13 in the book of Hebrews. And I'll pick up where we left off last week, which uh, is toward the end of that chapter. And uh, chapter 13, verse 17, if, you're, if you've checked in your Bible, let's go to prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us in so many ways. This service, Father, is just one reminder to me of, of that faithfulness that you have been working in the lives of children and adults over many years and continue to do so among those who gather here. You've knitted us together. You've brought together men and women who maybe in the first days of our meeting weren't sure on what you were doing or whether this was where you would prefer that they meet. But, Lord, over time you made clear what your intentions were. And as we cemented those friendships and the family of God you've assembled here, Lord, it's been clear how you've chosen to use us for each other's benefit through the Spirit working in us, growing us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. How uh, precious it is, Father, to see that work. How jealous we are of it for others' sake. We want to share it, Lord. We want others to know the true love of Christ and, and to understand how the body working together can reflect you to the world. But we also know, Father, we have to be ready for that and we have to prepare ourselves. So we ask, Father, that you would use our time in the Word this morning to prepare us and to strengthen us for this work continuing in what you've been doing all along, showing us, Father, how we can, we can bring the word to others, even as we try to, try to live it out ourselves. And perhaps no better example of your faithfulness is evident today, Father, than the mere fact that we've come to the end of a book, these uh, milestones that you allow us to experience along our path of study where we can reflect on the work it took to get through a book and the understanding that it offered and the, and the grace that is evident in it. Thank you, Father, that we can come to the end of Hebrews today. And as you've done throughout, show us the truth of these matters according to your spirit. Guide us in all understanding. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, friends, we are at the end of our study of the book of Hebrews. There's still a few exhortations left to study at the end of the chapter. But as we come to this point, as I like to do sometimes, it's appropriate to take a few moments to review the main points we've studied in this letter. I'm not going to give you a test. But I think it's healthy to remember at least the major ideas. And naturally, in this letter, the major points all center around those five warnings that are so characteristic of the letter. So think back with me as we go through the other 12 chapters and see if you can remember the same things I remember. Back, for example, in chapters one and two, where the writer begins this letter from the Old Testament teaching on the preeminence of Christ. Remember, he had to set that foundation for the readers. Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy concerning who the Messiah would be. It was so important that the readers understand that when the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah, it was speaking of God in the form of man. That was something that the Old Testament always anticipated. A man who, as God, was higher than angels, higher than Moses, higher than so many other icons of Jewish history. God taking the form of man to live and die in our place because we couldn't save ourselves. And from there, the writer moved into the first warning, the danger of drifting by this truth that Jesus is God in flesh. I use the analogy of a person on a boat floating by a dock on a lazy river. You see it, you contemplate it, you pay attention to it just for a moment, but then without moving to grab hold of it and to, and to anchor yourself to it, you just float on by. That's how some see Christ from a distance, never seriously considering him to be God, much less worshiping him. Then the writer moves closer into the gathering, moves sort of from that fringe down into closer to the gathering of the believers. He now begins to focus on those who've associated themselves with the church. I mean, they're they're among us, but they're not us. The writer used the example of the generation of Israel in the desert 
Those who saw the wonders of God, and yet they never experienced faith in the heart, the writer says. They were an unbelieving generation in Israel. And from their experience, the writer issued the second warning to those who gather. He says this warning was for those who fail to believe. And he says the result in that will be barring them from entering into the Lord's rest, into the promised land, into heaven, in other words. You have to accept the gospel in its full form if you're going to be saved. We have to understand we're sinners. We die in our sin if left that way. And if so, we will enter into an eternity of torment in exile from God. These are things no one likes to hear anymore. And few places will preach anymore. But the Bible preaches it. But this does not need to be anyone's future, because if you accept Christ's death on the cross in your place, the father, having poured out his wrath on Christ instead of on you and I, will allow us entry into heaven by his mercy because of the righteousness of Christ, not because we did anything of our own merit. If you believe that Christ died in your place and that the father resurrected him to new life, then, as Paul says, you shall be saved. That's the gospel. And by that, you enter into the rest that he offers. Now, at that point in the letter, we come to the last three warnings in succession, and they all move closer and closer to the heart of God's people. We've, we set aside the question of if you're a believer at this point, and in the last three, we now face issues that are issues of the believer's life. In chapter 6, he warned us about the danger of not pressing on to maturity, not advancing in our study of God's word. And if you don't know what he wants, you're not going to know how to please him. And if you don't know how to please him, then you're not going to see your full reward. That was the essence of the third warning. Chapter 10, he turned to the warning about the church willfully sinning. Remember this problem? We know, and yet we repeatedly choose to sin over obedience. And in so doing, he says, you risk bringing the judgment of God upon you. Not a judgment that leads to hell, for once saved by the grace of God, there's no undoing that work. But there is still consequence for sin. And the Lord says he will judge his people, the writer quoted. So we remain accountable to the Lord. And then next in chapter 11, we study that incomparable chapter on the hall of faith. Remember all those examples of Old Testament saints who give us something to shoot for in our own walk. What was the common feature of all those examples? Men and women who lived with an expectation of reward in heaven rather than with an expectation of anything on earth. Because they knew they'd be resurrected, because they knew this body was temporary, the new one to come would be permanent. They didn't try to get it all now. They were willing to be patient and wait for the rewards that come for obedience. That was always the key issue. Friends, you can't rush the plan of God. You can't get your rewards early. You have to be prepared to suffer at times if you're going to get the glory that awaits those who are obedient. And that led to the final warning, chapter 12, that you not shrink back from your walk of faith, even in the face of trials. You have to anticipate. In fact, you have to accept the discipline of the Lord. It's a part of the deal, we said. And when you encounter that discipline, you have to endure in your faith. You can't risk failing when the tests come. And he says, don't retreat. Because in the end, if you pass up the opportunities the Lord sets before you in the form of these trials, then you're also passing up the potential to receive a full inheritance for those who pass the trial well. You know, just like in school, you can't get the grade if you don't take the test. And you won't do well if you don't study like the proverbial Esau that the writer referred to, who complained bitterly when he realized what he had lost. But by the time he realized that it, it was too late, that'll be the, the circumstance, unfortunately, for some Christians who show up on Judgment Day in front of the Lord and only then realize that, yes, there is a judgment for the believer and there are consequences. But now it's too late to do anything about it. That's a sobering step, isn't it? Chapter 12 gets us to that point where we're. We're thinking hard and long about our own lives, about what we do and how we've done it and whether it's too late and can I turn now? And the answer has been yes. 
Yes, it's not too late. That's the whole point of having the book of Hebrews so that we might think about these things. And chapter 13 was the finishing thought of this author in this book in which he gives us a series of exhortations that are that turn. They are collectively the way by which we address the underlying issues he's raised. Love for the brethren. Love for the stranger. How to identify with those who are persecuted or ill-treated. How to not let the fear of persecution silence our witness. To live free of the love of money. To live with respect for the sanctity of marriage. To respect the teaching of the Bible. To rest once and forever in the sacrifices of Christ. These, these are the essential things that lead us into holiness. Now, as we prepare to finish the letter, I want you to consider once more the power of a Christian life that's being lived according to these principles. If we actually did what the writer's asking us to do in chapter 13, how brightly would the light of Christ shine in a dark world if we lived this way? Ask yourself that. What, what would the world think of someone who held Scripture as the authority in their life, not merely giving it lip service? Or what if we loved both those inside and outside the body of Christ with equal sacrifice and equal devotion? Or what if we were faithful both before and during marriage as a rule in the body of Christ? What if we all live with contentment with what God has given to us in the body of Christ? What if we rested in his grace? If we could say we did all of those things consistently, we couldn't help but stand out. That's literally the polar opposite of the world. And so be it. That's what it's all about, being light and darkness. Who could ignore a witness like that? How great might we impact the kingdom for the Lord if that's how we lived? That's what's at stake. That's why he wrote the letter, friends. That's why we read these things on Sunday. That's why we come here once a week. It's because godliness is pleasing to the Lord. And pleasing the Lord is the whole point of living on earth while we await our resurrection. Otherwise, he would just take us home right now. He's left us here for a reason. A witness to great purpose is the reason. So with that review, we come to the final exhortations for the church. Starting in verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, as you probably can guess, I've been looking forward to this verse the whole letter. <laughs> let's look at it carefully, though. The writer says the body of believers are to obey and submit to their leaders. Now, let's begin by acknowledging what I hope is an obvious point, but it's an important truth. Nonetheless, the Lord did not organize his church as a commune. He did not organize the body of Christ as a democracy. Christ, first and foremost, rules his church. That's made clear in Scripture in multiple places. But beyond that, he has appointed human leaders to administer to the affairs of the body. That's implicit in this instruction, right? That you can't have obedience to leaders unless it's clear that we have to have leaders within the church. So let's review quickly what it means when he says the word leader, what a leader is biblically, because people have found a million ways to distort what leadership in the church actually looks like. And that's just the reflection of the sin of the human heart. But the Bible stands unchanged. So let's consider what the word says about leaders. According to scripture, church leaders come in two forms. First, you have men called presbyteros or episkopos in the Greek. Those are words that mean elder or overseer or bishop. So let's just use simple words, elder and overseer. These two titles are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They are literally synonyms. For example, in Titus 1, Paul uses both of these Greek words interchangeably in the same passage talking about a single group of people. 
So we do not have elders and then bishops. We have one group of people who can be called either elder or bishop or overseer, and they are the leaders of the church. They rule over all matters in the church by scripture. The second form of leader in the church is called a deacon or a deaconess. Deacons can be men or women, according to scripture, and they come under the authority of elders or overseers who are always men. They lead through service. Deacons are known by leaders of service. They assume responsibility within the church for organizing and executing the work of that body. Interestingly, the the New Testament never names a pastor as a leader. The role of pastor is not a leader per se. Paul only uses that term once in all his letters. And even when he does mention it in Ephesians, he mentions it in the context of a list of service gifts to the body in the same context as teacher, for example. So pastoring is a gift of service to the body, according to Paul, not a position of inherent leadership. They serve through shepherding the flock, by feeding them the word of God, by counseling, by encouraging, by exhorting them. This is what pastoring means. Obviously, a pastor can also be an elder or a pastor can be a deacon. But if they aren't in one of the positions of authority, specifically if they are not an elder, then they are submitted to the elders, just like anyone else in the body would be. They are just another member of the church at that level. Pastoring is their role in the church, and that's their service gift. But they're not inherently a person of power. So if a pastor is not an elder, they submit like the rest of the congregation. They don't have to be an elder. In our church, I am not an elder. I'm a pastor. We have elders. I submit to their authority just like you do when I feel like it. It's a joke. It's just a joke. Therefore, by Scripture, a church should be led by elders, served by deacons, and the whole body behind them serving as well. And all of these positions are filled by those who can meet the qualifications that are given to us in Scripture. Now, you can find those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. For the sake of time, we're not going to review all of those qualifications. That sort of takes us too far off the point. But you can summarize the qualifications for elders and deacons with just two simple statements. Elders are to be men who know the word of God well enough to teach it to others. And both elders and deacons must possess personal testimonies that reflect the word of God lived out. We are told to seek for leaders who have those qualifications, that they know the word of God well enough to teach others, and that their lives reflect it. That's generally a summation of what Paul writes in those two chapters. And we're told to seek for those qualifications because you want people to lead you who model what following Christ looks like. How hard is it to have people in positions of leadership who you have to make excuses for? Great person, love everything about him. Oh, this little thing in his life, don't pay attention to that. That's sort of not right. But everything else is great. Why have to do with that? The whole idea is they live out the word well. And you want examples of people who do that at the head of the line so that when you're trying to figure out what do I do to please Christ, you should be able to say, just like my elders, if I do that, I'll be okay. If your elder can't stand up to that test, you want a different elder. That's all we're talking about. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's making the same argument. I'm doing my best. If I do my best, you should be seeing Christ in me. Do what I do. You'll be like Christ, more or less. And a healthy church should have both elders and deacons working together to serve and lead the body. You see this at work in the first church in Acts chapter 6. I'll just read a quick passage from Acts 6, 1 and 6. He says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, 
a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, speaking of the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So they said, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Those twelve apostles were effectively the first elders in the church, in the sense that they had a leadership role for the early church. So think about this. The entire church in Jerusalem had twelve guys running the show, as God appointed. They served primarily through teaching the word and praying for the needs of the body. Teaching is essential to the development of the church, helping grow the church, build up the church in their knowledge of Scripture, according to what the Great Commission asked, to teach them to obey all that I commanded you. That's part of the Great Commission. So they're working the plan that God has given them in their role as elders. But what about prayer? Prayer is bigger than just them staying at home in their closet praying all day. That's not what that's really talking about. That's pieces of it, certainly. But it's more to the point of what an elder does in prayer. Elders pray over people. In the case of the apostles, particularly, they pray for healing, and they could lay on hands. They pray for guidance. They pray for equipping. You know, there's moments in certain cases in Acts when an apostle would bring the spirit to those who had already believed. That's a part of that prayer ministry that's being referred to here. We're talking here about the broader scope of what apostles did for the church in the early days. Taught and prayed or ministered to the body in some very specific ways. That was preeminent for them. Friends, if they didn't do those things, who was going to do those things? That's the fundamental question. If I stop doing what I'm called to do in the role of teaching, who's going to teach? You can't let that happen. If if there's only one or a few people appointed to that role, they need to stay on that task. But there are other needs. In this case, they had to worry about how food was distributed. The leaders in this case made the right call. They said, we cannot substitute those duties for our primary duties. We have to stay on task. And at the same time, we can't neglect those needs. So they did the next thing they could do, which is they appointed people, men in this case, of good character, and asked them to serve that need. They became the first deacons of the church. So the men you see appointed here in chapter 6 are really the first of this idea of leaders appointed to service. Deacons. Now, this should be our pattern as well as a church. In general terms, we should have leaders called elders, and we do, and they oversee the church. And those men, along with pastors, teachers, collectively they build up the body in the word, and they pray over and for those in the church. That's the principal role of those leaders. But around them, serving the body, we need other people. And you've seen that, as I've already mentioned, just in the way we conduct the service. We exemplify that. We try to bring people into service. And sometimes you need someone in those roles to take a bigger place than simply helping out. They need to organize. They need to run this event or these areas of ministry within the church. That's a deacon role. Now, it doesn't necessarily require that we lay on hands and assign a title for someone to act in a deacon role, though that would be nice to do on occasion. But even without doing that, we have people who act in that role and we want those people to serve. And they should understand they have an important part to play in the church. Sometimes a deacon becomes an elder or not. But in any case, the church is supposed to run on the backs of these people who have a disproportionate share of responsibility in the church. Now, that's what the writer means 
when he says leaders. So it's not just elders. It's not just the pastor. In fact, it's often not the pastor. It's elders and those who take leading roles in service, sometimes called deacons. And collectively, this group is the leadership of the church. The writer says we need to obey those people. Most certainly, we know he's speaking about elders. That's a given. Those respected men who have that role, they've been appointed for a reason, and the Lord has had his hand in that appointment. The writer says we are to submit to their authority. What's the difference between obedience and submission? Well, obedience is a hard attitude. Ironically, you can do what I tell you and not be obedient. Parents with teenagers know exactly what I'm talking about. There's always a way to show someone I'm not really obedient, even as I go through the motions of appearing to be obedient. Right? Obedience is a hard attitude. Obedience says in your heart, I believe that what you're telling me is something I need to do, and I'm willing to do it. Submission is the behavioral evidence of obedience. You might claim to be under authority. You might claim to be in obedience to authority. You might go around saying that to yourself or to others. But until you actually submit to that authority, then you're not demonstrating any obedience to that authority. If you tell someone you respect what they have to tell you and then you don't do anything they tell you, you're lying to yourself and to them. Requirement to submit is true for us both corporately and individually in this context. As our elders make decisions for the body, well, then as a body, we're obligated to submit to those decisions as a body. And that means, by the way, friends, that means working in good faith. You can say in a group setting you agree with some decision and say you're supporting of it. And then behind someone's back, you can do a lot of things to undermine it. That's not operating in good faith. That's disingenuous. Submission and obedience means working in good faith to carry out the requirements of whatever decisions are being made and to speak well of those who are in those leadership positions, to support them in all senses of the word, to see them as an extension of Christ's own authority in our life. Now, only in cases where a decision coming from elders is in direct conflict with the word of God would we have any case at all, any reason at all to contend with their authority. And even in those cases, the scriptures provide a process for challenging that decision. In other words, we are not free in our own to just decide, oh, I don't like that. I think that's wrong. I'll just go do my own thing. Go back to the obedience step because you're off track already. But if you believe there's a problem, you have every right and every opportunity to bring it up through a process in which others with opportunity to consider the details with you will come to an assessment of whether or not there's a true concern here or not. Paul says clearly in 1 Timothy 5.19 that no one is to accept a charge against an elder except that it would come by two or more people who can speak to the same issue. In other words, we want to be doubly sure before we start undermining anyone's authority that we really understand what's going on and that there isn't some ulterior motive. Friends, the bottom line is we hold our elders in high esteem and we give them the benefit of the doubt and we respect their authority as from God and knowing they're just men and they're fallible, yes, but who better to select amongst us? They represent the mature in our midst. Now, that's the corporate responsibility. But friends, there's also an individual responsibility to submit to leaders. When elders give you personal counsel, personal exhortation, or personal rebuke concerning something in your life, we are commanded by Scripture to listen to them and to heed that direction. This is never more true than when you receive personal correction because of sin in your life. Should an elder or elders confront us over our sin, we are commanded by Scripture to obey their concerns. Pride, personal opinion, those things have no place in obedience, no place in submission. And to be clear, I'm not telling you that the elders are always right. They're human. They're going to be wrong sometimes. That's not the issue. The command to submit and obey is never conditioned on a personal assessment 
about the correctness of the order. Slaves, for example, don't submit to their masters only when their masters are right. And yet the scriptures tell slaves to submit to their masters. Children don't submit to their parents only when parents are right. Do you want that in your family? I didn't. Wives are not called to submit to husbands only after careful examination of the husband's logic and reasoning. And submission, friends, is never truly submission until you're asked to do something you don't like. Then we're going to find out if you really have a submitted heart. It's easy to submit when it's all going the way you want. That's not called submission. That's called agreement. (laughs) Submission is when you're asked to do the thing you don't want to do. And you do it anyway because you want to obey God. And again, you may be doing the very thing you think you shouldn't do. Leave that with God. You know the story of Sarah, right? Abraham said, tell everyone you're my sister. She knew what was coming, but she did it because she trusted God more than she trusted her husband. Notice the writer explains submission to our leaders is in our own best interests. He says, leaders, keep watch over your souls as though they will give an account. What he's saying is the leadership of the church exists to guard our souls in the sense of guarding us from ourselves. From our own worst instincts, from our own desires, from our own sin. That's the whole point. Friends, we all need help from time to time. Wouldn't you agree? And you need advice sometimes. Sometimes you need counsel. Sometimes you need correction. We all do. And if others look at us objectively with the godliness that comes from years of study of Scripture and living it out and mistakes along the way, etc., that's an invaluable resource if your goal is godliness. Now, if your goal is affirmation, If you come to a place like this because you want everyone to tell you how good you are already, well, there's really no point in being here. We're not here to feel better about who we were walking in. The world talks about self-esteem as a need. Friends, that's a lie from the enemy. The last thing you need is more self-esteem. You were born with so much pride, you don't even know what to do with it. What we need is more Christ-esteem. And the way we get there is by recognizing the difference between where he is in his perfection and where we are And how far we have yet to go if we want to be Christ-like. And the more we can see that gap, the better we are at understanding what has to happen to close it. But if you come in thinking you're up here, which, by the way, we all have that view of ourselves at times, and no one's willing to show you the difference, well, what good was that? These men, they have to give an account for how they administered to the process of making you more Christ-like. That's the, the scripture's teaching. And the Lord loves us so much that he has seen fit to appoint shepherds over his flock so that we will have that guidance we need to become more like him so that we will have a better result at our reward. So, as the writer says, we only hurt ourselves when we elect not to listen to their counsel. When we go against what we're told, or as will often happen, right, and this is something we've all seen, I'm sure, when someone is brought face to face with their weaknesses, with their sin, with something they need to address, they run. That Sunday will be the last Sunday you ever see them. They came face to face with what the church had to show them, and they said, you know what? I don't like that. I don't have to listen to this. I'm out of here. Well, yeah, you you can do that, but you can't run from God. I mean, you can run for a while, but there's a day you won't be running. When that time comes for the leaders to give an account, what the leaders have to be held accountable to is, did they make the best efforts they could to teach, instruct, and correct? But what they do not give an account for is what you did with it. We all give an account individually for what we do with what we're given from God. But we do have an opportunity when we have good leaders. In the same way that a child will profit from good advice and counsel coming from godly parents, so will we profit from listening to our elders. 
If we make that a rule, if we're submitted to their leadership. But notice this is a two way street. The writer says the leadership has to be called to account as well. And that's a sobering reminder to the leaders. It's sobering to remember that you and I, other leaders, will be prepared to face judgment over how we led the church of God. We'll have to be prepared to answer questions like, were you diligent? Were you selfless? Were you sacrificial? Were you honorable in your leadership? Did you speak the truth or did you hold back the word of God? I mean, imagine, for example, me sitting at home on a Saturday preparing something like this and wondering to myself, gee, when I say these things, will it hurt people's feelings? Will some of them not like to hear it? Maybe some will leave and I won't see them again. Maybe I'll just tailor this a little differently. Let me just soften this. Let me just, I'll take this part out. That's something I'm accountable for. And when I think about that, I just remember Hebrews 13, 17. Because what am I going to hear from Christ when I stand before him? And he said, you know, I gave you all those hours to preach and you just kept softening and avoiding and setting it aside. And you preached happy things because, you know, that made people's ears tickle. So the question for the leader is, do you perform your responsibility without hypocrisy? So let's agree as a church, we'll always seek leaders who exemplify high standards of Scripture. And then let's agree to commit to following that lead. Let's not make their job any more difficult than it already is. Let's submit to them and to their counsel. Let's be mature enough to appreciate that failure to submit only hurts us in the long run. And that's not to our advantage. Now, look what the writer says, 18 and 19. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorable, honorably in all things. But I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. The writer asks his readers, pray for us that we would have a good conscience. He says, we're sure that we have one. But his point is, pray for us to always be able to say this. Pray that this will always be true for us. A good conscience is a good testimony that is guilt free, that is without cause for condemnation as a leader. So if you respect and you want to follow the men and in some cases women who are leaders over you in one aspect or another, if you want that, if you want them to be godly, well, then you need to help them in all respects. And one of those is clearly to pray for them, for example. What would you feel like if you had this command to be obedient and submitted to a leader, but you happen to have a leader who you didn't have any respect for because their life was full of sin and hypocrisy? That could happen. I mean, it could happen in the sense that we put the wrong person in leadership. No one wants that. Who wants to be submitted to a scoundrel? Neither do we want a good guy to turn into a bad one down the road. We want to pray to hope that the Lord consistently gives them a good testimony. In so many places today, that's exactly the situation that you'll find believers facing. If you've been around the church long enough, you've been to other churches perhaps, or just read the news, you'll know there are churches with leaders who are dishonest. They are unqualified. They ask the church to do the wrong thing for the wrong reason. They have selfish motives. Their interests are more about a business than about the business of the church. And the writer says, you want to pray that those who lead you can always say honestly that they have a good conscience in what they do. I'll tell you from the role I've had in years as pastor here and elsewhere and just as a teacher, the enemy delights to tear down leaders. He delights to trip people up who stand at the forefront of the church in whatever capacity. The attacks of the enemy are varied. They come in from every angle. They often come from places you'd never expect. The, the enemy comes like an angel of light. You know, the ones you think are your friends sometimes aren't in leadership in terms of how you uh, are approached by people. And I'm speaking broadly, not about this congregation, but in general. 
the classic case of the pastor who falls for the church secretary. Like I said, that's why we don't have church secretaries here. We just took that problem off the table altogether. The point is there's always something lurking in the shadows and the enemy is never going to stop. There's no more effective way to hurt a church than to take the leadership out. And as such, we have to continually be praying that leaders remain godly in all circumstances, honest, sincere, dedicated and of godly character. The writer also asks for him to be restored to the church sooner than later. The words in Greek here are a subtle reference to captivity. In other words, the writer is saying it would seem that he's writing from prison and he's asking to be restored from prison. Now, how much more remarkable is this man's letter when you think back now to everything we've covered over the months we've been studying it? Now, consider realizing that the whole time he wrote this letter, he is sitting in prison, persecuted for his faith. He is one of those who've been witnessing for the Lord and suffering in his faith because of it, just like the ones of chapter 11. And while he's in that position, what's his letter been about? No self-pity, no request for rescue, no whining about his circumstances. What's he been talking about the whole time? His concern that the church would live out its witness boldly like he's doing. And yet he does it without ever referring to his own circumstances as some kind of example. That's the kind of self-sacrificial witness that we all want to adopt, that we should try to strive for. Men and women who assume positions of leadership, who take on the tasks of the church, others around them who follow and submit to their authority, all of them seeking to glorify Christ, all of them looking forward to a reward at the end of it all, not in the meantime. That's what we're trying to be as a church. That's what the writer is trying to encourage amongst those who read this letter. And so as we think about who leads us or into that process somewhere in the future, we ought to be thinking about men and women who assume positions of leadership for the right reasons, not for personal ego, not for personal gain, but for the reasons that the Lord has. And we ought to know that the Lord has a tendency of testing those people who come into leadership so as to expose those motives, usually pretty quickly. Men who serve for decades without compensation, men who are selflessly giving of their time to the body are exceptions. I have never seen three elders, three men of leadership with less ego than the three gentlemen who serve as elders in this church. And, and I say that not to gain their praise or to gain anything back from them. I say that in sincerity. They are exactly the kinds of leaders you want to emulate exactly. And not because they're perfect, but because they're here every day working hard for you guys because they love the Lord. They've done it for decades. They've done it with heart issues. They've done it with kid issues. They've done it with other health issues. They have never been paid a dime. They don't want their name on the building. If that's not the kind of faithful service that we all want to aspire to, I don't know what is. I'd like you all today at the luncheon, take a moment with John and with Dave and to Rick and express your own personal appreciation for these men. They don't ask for it. They're not expecting it, but they certainly deserve it. And I should add their wives, an equal extension of their ministry and often doing more than they are, I think. They've served as couples here. You know, when you look at what Hebrews has to say about obeying and submitting them because they keep watching. When I think about people who do that, I think about these three guys and That's why this church is, I think, still humming after 30 years. We're here because three men have done their best with God's grace to make this church what it is. So I want to thank them publicly and acknowledge their leadership. And I ask you to do the same when you get the chance. Let's close the letter. The writer reminds us that our earthly leaders are merely temporary substitutes for the true shepherd. For that's who we seek. 20 and 21, he says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Christ our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us 
that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the benediction, which is a fancy word for a blessing you add at the end of a religious teaching. And he reminds us here of who we've been serving. This is simple, friends. The Lord is our great shepherd. We have under shepherds, we have leaders, yes, but we're all serving the same Lord. How much service and devotion and obedience do you owe the one who has spilled his blood for you, the writer's asking. And the answer, of course, is you owe him everything. And yet his love for us won't stop at our salvation. He continues to bless us by equipping us to do works. And those works will ultimately please him. And by that pleasure, he will ultimately assign reward to us. You see, the the love of God doesn't stop at the cross. It begins at the cross. And what he does with us after that is he molds us into his image. And by that molding process, we become more eligible for his rewards. It's all him and it's all done in love and for the glory of Christ. That's why we sit here this morning, friends. As I like to say, we're here because we've been saved, not in order to be saved. We come here because we're drawn to Christ. We serve in his power, power he gives us by the spirit, wisdom and the like, things we could never do in our own power. And then we do so to please him. But you've got to take advantage of the opportunity. The writer ends in verses 22 through 25 with a with a brief statement of, Grace and a note to a friend, he says, 22, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. So the writer ends by asking us to bear with this word of exhortation. I love how he ends it, right? He says, I've only written to you very briefly. It's 13 chapters. It'll take Steve the better part of a year to finish. But, but it's brief. That tells you something all by itself, doesn't it? If what he had to say was considered brief, then it tells you, by comparison, how much could have been said about these matters. Which is why we have the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Bible, for that matter. So he's saying, look, don't overlook what's here, because it's just the, the beginning of something. And then he gives us a recipe for great joy and great reward by explaining the sufficiency and the greatness of Christ in this letter. That's what he's given to us, something that would hopefully wake us up to serious threats against our walk and to great examples of faithfulness, all of this with the intent that we'd study it with application. If this letter has left you with something new in your mind, that's wonderful. If it's helped motivate your heart to think differently and act differently in your life, well, that's even better. But if you never actually do it, then it was all for naught. In the end, any scripture you learn but don't apply stands as witness against you. Rather than as a tool the Lord would use to bring you closer to him. Let's not become just hearers of the word or seers in this case. Let's become doers. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the exhortation of the book of Hebrews. And this morning, more than any day, Father, I thank you for our leaders and for those who pointed over us. Faithful men and women who serve selflessly father we do pray for them this morning father we pray their hearts would remain humble despite the praise we offer them we pray that their diligence would remain unwavering even as their bodies may waver at times we pray that their hearts father would would be lifted up and looking back on the many years of service they've offered and they would would take great comfort and satisfaction in seeing how you could use them in the body of christ And we, Father, we also ask that that all of us would look upon them as examples of your faithfulness to us through their service. And, Father, we ask that our meal today would be one of uh, 
enjoyment, fellowship, and uh, another example of your provision of grace, and that our communion would just be a beginning for that, Father, a chance to remember the significance of what you did through your Son on the cross. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.